You don't lack anything. The blessing has been bestowed upon you. You have every spiritual blessing. What you need to do is apprehend it. You need that God would grant you eyes to further apprehend the blessing. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of A Prayer to Live By by Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, in which Paul the Apostle gives thanks and praise for the Christians at Ephesus. In his letter to these first century Christians, Paul tells them how spiritually rich they are in Jesus Christ, how much he has heard of their faith in Christ and of their love for each other. And then Paul prays for them. What does Paul pray for believers so rich in faith? What does Paul pray for believers that he says are so very rich in every spiritual blessing? Let's consider those questions as we hear part one of Pastor Paul's six-part series of Prayer to Live By. As we move into the prayer, one thing to note is that this is fairly customary of Paul. In his epistles, there's a a general pattern that you can observe where he gives some opening comments and then he moves on to an introductory prayer. It's fairly standard in Paul's epistles. He begins with some comments, some greetings, and then he launches into a prayer for the believers to whom he's writing. It's fairly standard. The problem with the letter to the Ephesians or with this prayer is that his opening comments the eulogy that we've been studying for a number of weeks, have said and communicated to the Ephesians that they have everything. What Paul says in his opening comments in this letter is that you Christians lack nothing. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All that God has for you, he has given to you. So the reason I say it's a problem is what do you pray for someone who has everything. That's the question that I want to try and answer this evening by looking at Paul's prayer. It is a question that does relate to the Christians in Ephesus. It also relates to us. Because in this sense, the Ephesians were not unique. The blessings that Paul has outlined in verses 3 through 14 are universal to all those who are found in Christ. You, this evening, lack nothing. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. God hasn't withheld anything from you. You have everything. Therefore, what on earth do you pray for such a rich, rich person? The answer, in summary, is that Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know more of God and his gospel. That's my summation of Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. What do you pray for someone who has everything? Answer, you pray that they would know more of God and his gospel. And every part of that statement is important. Every part of it reflects Paul's prayer 
Every part of his prayer is crucial. You don't lack anything. The blessing has been bestowed upon you. You have every spiritual blessing. What you need to do is apprehend it. You need that God would grant you eyes to further apprehend the blessing. To further see it because your apprehension of it directly affects the way in which you live. But that alone is insufficient. If all you do is apprehend the blessing apart from the blesser, you actually start to distort the blessing. If you only see the gift and you never consider the giver, the articulation of the gift itself in your heart starts to change. And so what you need to do and what Paul understands and prays for the Ephesians is that they must know, apprehend, seize a greater understanding of both the gift and the giver. They must hold both together in unison. And it is then and only then that you are equipped to bless God. That has been the driving motivation of Paul since verse three onwards. Implicit exhortation. God is blessed. He is praised. Implicit question. Is your life praising him? Are you blessing him? And so week after week, as we've worked through this eulogy, I've been exhorting you to consider whether you are responding in your life to the blessings that you have received by blessing God in return. That continues to be Paul's concern here as he prays for the Ephesians. He wants them to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that they have received, to borrow from the language of chapter 4 in this epistle. How then do you do that? You better understand your God, the God who is the giver of the gospel. May that be our experience through this text this evening. Now to get at it, I just want to ask a few questions as we walk through verse by verse, asking questions of the text so as to unearth its truth. The first question being, to whom or for whom is Paul praying? For whom is Paul praying? Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith, In the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The simple answer to the question, for whom is Paul praying? The simple answer is the Christians at Ephesus. It's in the same letter. Contextually, this is a prayer for them. But we should and ought to go further and say it's not just for the Christians in Ephesus, but Specifically, it's for those who are spiritually rich. That's how Paul is viewing these Christians. He says in verse 3, you have everything. So we understand rightly this prayer is a prayer for those who are spiritually blessed. That is to say, all Christians. We can go even further and say this is a prayer for the spiritually flourishing Look what Paul says, for this reason, the reason being, I have heard about your faith in the Lord and your love towards the saints. These Christians were doing the thing. They were bearing fruit. 
Paul says, since I left you, I have heard reports of your steadfastness in your faith towards the things of the Lord, and I've heard about your love for one another. He invokes both the horizontal and the vertical pillars of the Christian faith and say, you guys are doing it. And so he is praying for them. Notice that is the impetus which prompts him to pray. We so often think about this in completely contrary terms. I will pray this kind of prayer for the spiritually weak, for the spiritually immature, for the new believer in Christ. Completely to the contrary, Paul says, it is precisely because of your maturity that I'm praying these things. So you see, by way of application, this prayer is a prayer for life. That was my sermon title this week, A Prayer for Life. You never get beyond this prayer. Is it a prayer for the spiritually weak? Absolutely. Is it a prayer for the spiritually strong? Absolutely. It is always to be a prayer in the Christian life. So then, second question, what is the prayer? What does Paul pray for these spiritually flourishing Christians? Well, he gives thanks for them. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he outlines the petition. Verse 7, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There's Paul's petition on their behalf. The spirit there in verse 17 is rightly capitalized in my ESV. It is not to be understood as our spirit. Our spirit does not give us insight and revelation, at least not of the sort that Paul is asking for. It is the Holy Spirit that shines the kind of light that Paul wants them to have. He's not saying You don't have this Holy Spirit. I'm asking for it because as you remember, back in 11 through 14, he spoke about the fact that at the moment of saving faith, you receive the Spirit. So properly understood, what Paul is saying here is I am praying for a particular manifestation of the Spirit, a particular working of the Spirit in you. I am praying for a particular, a specific ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst you. The particular ministry that he is praying for is that that gives wisdom and revelation. They are not synonyms. Wisdom would pertain more to a deeper understanding of things perceived. If I pray for wisdom in a particular area, I'm asking for an appreciation, a deeper grasp of the things that I know. Revelation, by contrast, as perhaps it sounds, is an appreciation, a perception, a grasping of things not known. Reveal them to me. So wisdom speaks of a grasping of the things understood at a deeper level. Revelation speaks of a grasping of the things not made plain. Bringing them both together, we understand that Paul's prayer is that they would develop a holistic, robust, in-depth, and intimate knowledge of God himself. 
The prayer that I have for you, Ephesians, is that the Holy Spirit would manifest himself in such a way so as to give you wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Him there most likely referring back to verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is Paul's opening prayer for the spiritually flourishing, the Christians in Ephesus. I want you to better know God. Now, why would that be Paul's concern for them? They're doing really well. They're flourishing. He's hearing the reports. He prays for them. And and just to, to jump ahead, where he's going with this is that they would better grasp the eulogy. This is where we're headed tonight. He's going to pray a mirror image of the eulogy, verses 3 through 14, and he wants the Christians to better grasp the blessings that he has just spent so long outlining. So if that's where he's headed, why doesn't he just pray that? Why does he begin by saying, first and foremost, I want you to better apprehend the giver, to better grasp God? And the answer is because our apprehension of everything is informed first by our apprehension of God. God is the font of all knowledge. And our perception of anything in the world is directly influenced by our understanding of God. This is why it's so important for Christians to be ever striving to develop a more accurate biblical worldview. This is a responsibility in the Christian life that you would see things the way God sees them. You want to have a Christian worldview. When you look at different situations, you want to perceive them in the way that God perceives them. It is your responsibility to be sharpening your thoughts on various circumstances and situations to develop that biblical Christian worldview. And there are many different ways in which you can develop that worldview. We are served at this point in church history with wonderful resources that can help us. But perhaps the most helpful thing you can do is to study God. If you want to know what God thinks about something, the very best thing you can do is to study him and his character. And the more that you allow your thoughts to be aligned with his thoughts, the more you will reflect him in your thinking on other things. I guess most of my illustrations are taken from the submarine days. And that's not something I'm proud of. I'm terrible at illustrating. I would fail preaching class in seminary because I just cannot illustrate readily. And, and when I do try and illustrate, my mind wanders back to those days because they were such a significant part of our life for so long. And, and just this week, I was pondering a time when I was in that oversized sardine tin with many other guys and, and a book that I read that was, was transformative in my life. So when we went away for Three, four months, you know, the, the enemy was not claustrophobia. That's what most people think. Did you not get claustrophobic? And, and that's just not an issue. You'd think it would be, but it's not. The enemy is boredom. After you've done your 
work and you've eaten and you've slept, you've still got about six hours of the day to fill every single day for three to four months. And so I would take with me as many books as I could fit into my personal locker. You have a locker about this big, and the rule is if you can fit it in there, you're allowed to take it. And if you can't, it doesn't come. So I would fit into my locker as many books as I could bring, and they were books that had been recommended to me or that I knew had stood the test of time, and I I ought to read at some point in my life. And guess what? I've got a three-month period coming up where I'm not going to be doing an awful lot. So I'm going to take it with me. And and there are books that, that I read during that time that the Lord used greatly in my life. I remember taking with me the Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. And the first half of that book, as many of you will know, he walks through what does not constitute a religious affection. One after another, what does not constitute a true, genuine religious affection. And I'm reading it, and it's, it's hard, and I'm not encouraged. But you then get to the second half of the book. And then you read what does constitute a true religious affection. And I remember so vividly sitting in my cabin on the submarine, feeling like I was being saved all over again. Just incredible theology that the man had written about religious impulses in the heart. And my religious impulses were firing as I was reading about them. Another book that I read during that time was Stephen Charnock's two volumes, The Existence and Attributes of God. Now, I had come across that book by way of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. In J.I. Packer's introduction, he says something to the effect of very few would ever dare to attempt to read Stephen Charnock's Existence and Attributes of God. And I read a comment like that and I think, okay, I'm doing it. (laughs) I don't know anything about this book. I just read the one comment and I thought, I'm going to read this. So I found a second-hand copy on the internet. I ordered it. It came in the mail, two volumes. They fit in my locker. I took them away with me. And for about three months of my life, I made friends with Stephen Charnock. Chapter after chapter, page after page after page of his meditations on the various attributes of God. And two things happened. Number one, I got to know the God that saved me a whole lot better through Stephen Charnock. And number two, I started to look at the world differently. I started to think about things differently. I knew so much better now the character of God and his character is informing and instructing my thoughts on the world around me. Whatever you think about anything, it is indirectly, first and foremost, influenced by what you think about God. So as Paul wants them to apprehend better their blessings, he begins by saying, I want for you to know God. And that principle is especially true as it relates to the gospel. You see, as a rule of thumb, there are many things that the darkened mind, the mind that has not received the saving light of the gospel, there are many things that that mind can know accurately, but they tend to be things that are far removed from the spiritual realities of the gospel. 
So you can have a, a banker or an accountant or an engineer or an architect that knows very accurately the way the world works in his area of expertise without any saving knowledge of the gospel, without knowing God relationally. They can hit the nail on the head in many areas. But as you move away from those everyday non-spiritual issues towards eternal realities, as you start to move the focus toward the gospel, one thing that you do not find is theologians who have no knowledge of God and understand perfectly his gospel. That doesn't happen. So as Paul wants them to get their minds and their hearts around their blessings, verses 3 through 14, of the utmost importance for him as he prays is that you would get to know better God. He wants them to know the giver so that they would understand better the gift. You have to understand his attributes and his character. You have to understand his disposition towards you in Christ so that you can see the glory of the gospel. And if you won't give your time to understanding God, then your understanding of the gospel will be second rate at best. Understand this, that if you don't give time to learning of God himself, then surely over time, your understanding of the gift, the gospel, your blessings will start to be warped, will start to get subtly distorted. He wants you to have the gift and the giver in view at all times. If you don't focus on the giver, if he's never in the meditations of your heart and all you ever do is focus on the gift, the very nature of it starts to change within your heart so that over time you'll start to think thoughts like, I chose God, he didn't choose me. Paul has told us at length, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before you were, he elected you. If you don't keep the giver in view, you start to change the gift and start to believe not that God chose you as an act of his grace, but I chose God. If you don't keep the giver in view over time, you will start to believe that the purpose for you having chosen God was for your benefit. That's the sum total, the final expression of the gospel is that I am in a safe place. You lose sight of the drumbeat that Paul has been banging all the way through the eulogy. This whole thing is for the praise of his glory. That's why he ordained this gospel. It wasn't ultimately for your good, but ultimately for his glory. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. In his message today, Pastor Paul explains that whatever we think about God will influence how we think about our spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. This includes God's gracious offer of eternal salvation that was purchased by Christ's substitutionary death on a cross. To think rightly about our spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, we must know what God thinks about Jesus and what he thinks about the spiritual blessings he has bestowed upon his believers in Christ Jesus. And to know what God thinks, we must know him, his attributes, and his character. 
only then can a believer apprehend every spiritual blessing bestowed by Father God in Christ Jesus. For this reason, Pastor Paul encourages us to keep both God as giver of the gift of the gospel and the gift, the offer of eternal life, union with Jesus Christ, and adoption by our Heavenly Father in view at all times. To hear more and learn more, visit our website, TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcasts for a free audio archive of Pastor Paul's teachings. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Join us tomorrow, part two in our new series, A Prayer to Live By. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.